0: Well, good morning, glad you're here this morning today. We are continuing in our study on grace. We've been talking about grace the last couple of weeks, and and I kind of want to remind you how we define grace, and so if you've never heard that definition, I want you to kind of maybe write it down. Grace is the undeserved, unearned favor and love of God. That's what it is. So grace is God loves me not because of anything I've done, not because I deserve it. He loves me just because. Did you hear that this morning? Isn't that good news? Amen? He loves you not because you've earned it, not because you've worked extra hard and somehow you deserve it. He loves you just because. Now, here's where that's good news. Some of you walked in today and you feel unlovable. You say, Doug, if you just knew my story, if you just knew my life, if you just knew my past, heck, if you just knew the last two hours of my life, Doug, if you just knew I'm not that lovable. Well, guess what? Neither am I. But he sees this as lovable. And he shows us his grace, right? We just sang about it over and over again. He was saying about the grace that God gives us. And so grace is this undeserved, unearned love of God. And so week one, we began by looking at grace and works. And we talked, we saw a guy that come into Jesus' life, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he made this assumption. He said, teacher, if I'm going to have, if I'm going to have eternal life, what good deed must I do? So this guy comes to Jesus with a probably a correct assumption by the world standards because in the world, if you're going to succeed, if you're going to climb the ladder, if you're going to have more, what does it require? Performance, right? It requires you working harder, doing more, working longer. It, it requires a performance in you. So he comes to Jesus with that mindset. And Jesus goes, it's not about a good deed. It's about a good person. It's about me. And it's not about what you've done. It's about what you receive, and that whole story is about Jesus laying out for him that eternal life is not based on gaining it and acquiring it through what we've done, our good works, our good deeds. Eternal life, we acquire it through receiving the grace that he's offered us, amen? And then last week, we talked about grace and fairness, and some of you that are parents, hopefully that was really helpful for you. I said this last week, I'll say it again, as a a parent raising my kids up, I would joke with them, I'm not trying to be fair, I'm trying to be like God, I'm trying to be just. So fairness goes out the window in my household because there's no such thing as fair. Now the world says we should be fair, but even by the world's standards, there's no measurement of fairness, is there? And so last week we talked about grace and fairness because we live in a world that says we we want you to be fair, that God should be fair. Well, here's the thing about it. Grace and fairness are in direct opposition to one another. Fairness says you get what you deserve. Grace says you get what you don't deserve, right? Fairness says you get what you deserve, whether it's punishment or reward, you got it because you deserved it. Grace says, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve, and that's my love. In fact, if you've received his grace, we concluded last week with saying that the overflow of that should be gratitude in our hearts. And not just for the grace that we've received, but we should also have gratitude in our hearts for those around us as God's working in their lives. Instead of being jealous of how God's working in their lives, let's show grace and let's be grateful for the work that God is doing. So grace and fairness. Now today, we're going to shift a little bit and continue talking about grace, but I want to look at grace in discipline. Now, one of my favorite passages in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines those whom he wants loves, right? Some of you aren't convinced that. God disciplines those whom he loves. So is there grace and discipline? The answer is yes. If you've been a parent in the room, isn't that a large part of parenting? Isn't there grace and discipline? Like I remember, I don't know about some of you, I mean, some of you are younger. maybe, Maybe you got time out. Maybe you got spanked. I got a whooping. That's what I got. I mean, it's a little different. You just hear the belt sh- sh- come out of my dad's pants, you know? And I remember my dad would say, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. And I remember one day I looked at him right now and I said, Dad, I just wish you wouldn't love me so much. Right? Now, he really loved my sister, if you get my point. But for me, I was like, you know, Dad, you know, I mean, be quiet because there is there's grace even in discipline. In fact, one of the reflections of our love for someone in a relationship is discipline, right? And we're going to see that in the passage. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 21 is where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 21. And I want to give you a little background to the story as you turn there right now. Matthew 21. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll get you one. But we want you to bring your Bible. There's nothing like handling... The word of truth, the word of life, as we go through it. Matthew chapter 21, as you get there, you're gonna find out we're gonna to be toward the end in like verse, we're gonna start in chapter 21, verse 12. But the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus just had this labor and vineyards moment where he talks about grace and fairness, and he's kind of gone on his way. And then he begins in early chapter 21. He enters into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. It's the Sunday before he dies on the cross later that week and resurrects on that following Sunday. So this is the last week of Jesus' life that we're in right now. In fact, think about it this way. We're going to spend between now and December 1st in just the last week of his life. If you think about it, the gospel writers spent a third of what they wrote just on the last week of his life because it's super important. So on Sunday which would have been the triumphal entry on early chapter 21. Jesus comes in, he comes in on a donkey, he comes in, and everybody's waving these palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed are you, son of David. And what are they saying when they do that? They're saying, We believe that you're the Messiah. We believe that you're the one that has come. And he comes riding in. Now, you may look at this and go, Well, you know, maybe there wasn't very many people there. Because here's the here's the question I've always had in my life, and you may have had this. How can it be on a Sunday, a herd of people Cry, we believe that you're the Messiah, and four days later, they cry what? Crucify him! And some of you go, well, Doug, those just aren't the same people. Well, I would beg the differ. The historian Josephus says that this was Passover week. So this wasn't like one of many weeks people came to the temple. This was Passover. If you were a Jewish person, you made your journey to this place, to the temple, to bring your sacrifice. This was like someone in the Islamic world traveling to Mecca. I mean, this was like, you don't miss this. Everybody that's a Jew, if you can possibly make it, you journeyed all the way to Jerusalem. And Josephus says this, that he believes, based on his records, that during the time of Passover and that during the time of Jesus that there would have been as many as 260,000 sacrifices made by the high priest in this short week. Now, that's a lot of people. Now, that's, that's like per family. So now if you start multiplying the people, there's upwards to over millions of people in Jerusalem during this time. So when Jesus enters in the gate on his donkey people crying, Hosanna, it wasn't like an entourage of 15 people. There were people there that recognized that he is the Messiah. But yet we've got four days later, what happens? Those cries of Hosanna turn into crucify him. And I've always asked the question what was the change? What was the moment that things shifted in the minds of people that possibly led them from Hosanna to crucify? And I think the answer is our story today. Jesus does something that for the religious leaders, according to Mark's gospel, when he gets done with it, the religious leader says they sought out to destroy him. I mean, they wanted to kill him. And there's a shift that happens, and I believe it's this story where we see the pivot in the last week of Jesus' life where people went from Hosanna to crucify him. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to read verse 12 through 17. And I know you've been up a lot today, but if you would just stand with me in honor of reading God's word, if you would. Chapter 21, verse 12, says this, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ever read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and there he lodged. Let's pray, and then we'll be seated. God, I love you. I thank you for today. Th- this passage is so full of so many rich things we need to get today, Lord. May you prepare our hearts, may you prepare our minds, but may you prepare our spirits to receive your word today. For it's in your name we pray, amen. May you see it. Now, as you look at this passage today, there, there are some things before we get into, because the, the bulk of where I want to spend my time is how did Jesus respond to what he walked into. I want to spend the bulk of my time in what was the response of Jesus when he walked in the temple. But for us to understand Jesus' response, we kind of need to have some context. So there's really two or three things I want you to write down. There's two lines in your listening guide. I'm going to add a third one. It's not going to be on the screen because I added this morning, right? So it won't be on there. But two or three things contextually you need to know. First of all, the temple. The temple for the Jewish person was a sacred place. It was a place where they would go to pray where they would go to offer their worship and praise, and the place where they would go to make their sacrifices. The temple was a sacred, sacred, sacred place. That's why David wanted to build the temple. But God didn't allow him to. He allowed Solomon to build it. It was a sacred place. Not only was it a sacred place, it was a holy place. Now, do you know why the temple was viewed as a holy place? It's because they believed that the temple represented and reflected that that's where God was. Right? Are you with me on that? They believed it was holy because that's where God was. In fact, you had these outer court where the Gentiles were, then you had the inner court, and then you had a lot of other things going on. But then inside the temple, there was a room. Does anybody know what the innermost room was called? It was called the what? The Holy of Holies. And who resided in the Holy of Holies? God did. And the high priest would go in one time a year to offer an offering for atonement for all of Israel because that's where God was. And so it was a holy place because they believed the temple is where the creator God resided. In fact, in the Old Testament, when they had the Ark of the Covenant, it was in the Holy of Holies, and still they believed that was the presence of God. So it was a holy place. But also, it was a protected place. Here's what I mean. It was a place that was so revered that it was kept pure. If you were to go back in the Old Testament, and we're not going to do this, but if you were to go back there are so many things they had to do. I mean, we, you know, in, in America, we've lost the art of hand-washing, right? But for us, it's all about sanitary stuff. But in this day, I mean, they washed and washed and washed and washed. I mean, the ceremonial cleansing in the temple, to get into the temple, and once you were in the temple, all the ceremonial cleansing. Why did they do that? Because they wanted those who entered the presence of God to be pure of heart and pure of body. And what you were purity on the outside reflect the purity on the inside. And so the temple was sacred, it was holy, but it was also protected. So you need to know that about the temple. Now, also you saw in the story a group called the money changers, the second one, the money changers, right? Now, some of you, I've, I've been in church a long time, and when we read this passage, many of you will say this. Yeah, the reason Jesus got upset is because there was money changers in the temple. That's wrong. It was okay. Money changers were crucially important to the time when people would come for Passover. Here's why they were important. They would sit up outside in the Gentile court because they couldn't go into the Jewish court because they weren't. They would sit up in the Gentile court, which is the outer court. And if you had come in to that week, there's two things that everybody had to do, especially if you were Jew. You had to pay a half a shekel, which sounds like a lot of money, right? But it was two days wages, a half a shekel for the temple tax. And then if you didn't bring an animal with you to sacrifice, you had to buy one from a vendor. Now, here's the thing about it. And you say, well, Doug, well, didn't everybody bring one? Well, think about it. If you're traveling from a long ways off, you can't, you, if you get an a, a, a unblemished dove or pigeon, that was for those who were poor. And if you could bring an unspotted, unblemished lamb for those kind of middle class, and if you're really rich, it was like the bull. I mean, if you could bring them and you had to travel hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem, by the time you got the animal there, guess what? They're no longer blemished. They're dead, right? Because they couldn't make the journey with you. So if you came from a long ways off, you would have to buy an animal within the temple there. And so these money changers, here's what they would do. The reason they were so important is once you showed up, you had to pay your half a shekel temple tax. If you had to buy a a sacrifice, you did that. But here's the problem. They dealt in Roman currency. And Roman currency was not allowed in the temple. You couldn't bring it into the temple. So they had to exchange the Roman currency for what was called Tyrian money, which was what we call the shekel. That's how they exchanged it. But here's where the problem was. People were coming in and bringing, let's say, $100 worth of Roman coins, and you would expect somewhat of $100 worth of shekels back, would you not? Are you with me on this? But what the money changers would do is they would, we call it pennies on the dollar. That's what they would give them. So they might bring them $100 worth of Roman coins, but as far as shekels, they would give them maybe $10 worth of shekels. And so these money changers were gouging people with inflating the price and the exchanging of money, they would get what they deserved, and then they would give back to people a small portion of what they should have gotten back. Now, that sounds a lot like the government we live in, right? No, I'm just kidding. So, I mean, you're with me. You're awake. So, so that's what's going on here. There's gouging taking place. Now, here's the problem. You would say, okay, if you're the person, just don't pay it. You had to. You had to pay your temple tax once a year. You had no choice. And if you didn't have an animal, you had to. Or you weren't just a bad Jew, you might be ostracized. So you had no choice. The money changers had you by the throat. And so they would take the exchange of currency and they would rob, in essence, people with the exchange. If you're with me, say, I got you. you. Okay, let me add the third category. It's not on the screen. It's the vendors. There were vendors there. People that were selling the animals. You say, aha, that's why Jesus got mad. Nope. That was okay, too. Because if you showed up and you didn't have an animal because you traveled so far, you would have to go buy an animal from one of the vendors in the Gentile court. You'd have to go out there and buy that. But when you brought your animal to the temple, if you did bring one, it had to be approved. Now, the one who approved it was the high priest and all his other priests. They would approve any animal, whether it was acceptable or not. And here's where Josephus says the scam came in. Because the high priest was in cahoots with all the vendors. And so when they would bring an animal in to have it offered as a sacrifice, the high priest and the priests were the ones that decided whether it was acceptable or not. And they would say, no, 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 this is not acceptable. You have to go buy it from a vendor because that's not acceptable to God. Well, guess who got a kickback when they went and bought it from the vendor? The high priest. So the money changers, the vendors, and the high priest and all the priests were lining their pockets and the people of God were being Robbed. Of their money and of their privileges. And the, and, and the Gentile people being robbed of a place to worship. Now, I said all that to say this. That's the scene Jesus walks into. That's when he comes into the temple. That's what's going on. Money changing, robbing people. Vendors and high priests not approving and sending vendors so they can pad their pockets. That's what's going on. So this place that was sacred, this place that was holy, this place that was protected is now a place of corruption. That makes sense? Now let's look back and see, well, how did Jesus respond? Look at me in verse 12. It says this, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Listen, I would love to have been there, wouldn't you? I would, you know, I mean, listen, I would have loved to see Jesus walk on water. I would have loved to see Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man. I'd love that. But I love him seeing just flipping over tables. I would love to see that Jesus. Wouldn't you like to see that Jesus? You know why? Because you know how he responded? He responded with righteous anger. Jesus was angry. Did he sin? Absolutely not. But his right, there was righteousness in his anger. The righteousness was they had taken what was God's and they totally corrupted it. So he goes in and he's overturning tables. He, in fact, the, the phrase that drove them out, some scholars would say it actually should be translated, chase them out. That he's like running around like a madman in this place going, you're, you're robbing people. You're robbing God. You're robbing people. You're rob-. And he's chasing these people out of the outer courts of the temple area. Now, if you're the average person, let's just think, you're the person who is at the gate with your palm branches, Hosanna, blessed are you, son of David, you're the Messiah, and now you see him acting the way he's acting in the temple, what are you thinking? See, I believe, I believe, this is just Doug's speculation, But I think it's pretty justified because of what Mark tells us. I believe on that day when Jesus and Barabbas stood there, I believe the Pharisees and religious leaders were in the crowd and they were whispering something like this. Remember what he did in the temple. Remember what he did. Because listen, if you claim to be God, which he did, and you go into God's place, and you're turning over tables, and you're chasing people out, there's probably a moment where people that were following had a moment of pause, right? Thinking, okay, I followed you, I've walked with you, I've seen your miracles, I've seen what you've done, but this seems out of sorts for you, and I think I just need to pause for a moment here. See, I think the chief leaders, if you read Mark's gospel, he says, after that, they began seeking to destroy him. I think the day that Barabbas and Jesus stood there, they were circulating the crowd going, just remember the temple. Just remember what he did in the temple. How else could cries of Hosanna change to cries, crucify him? Because in their eyes, in human eyes, Jesus had gone into the temple and disrupted the very temple that he said that he belonged to. Right? But let me just be very clear about this. For Jesus... The time for cleansing had come, and he was going to clean that bad boy out. And you ladies in the room have a moment like in March where you go through your house and you get disgusted with all the clutter that you have. And you get disgusted with your husband's lack of putting up clothes. And he's not worn that shirt in 70, 17 years, but he's still got that shirt. And, and your kids have shoes that didn't fit them until five years ago. And yeah, I mean, do you ever have that moment, ladies, in March where you go, it's time to clean shop. Any ladies have that moment? Yeah, we have it every week in our house, by the way, so I don't understand that. But spring cleaning, right? There's that moment. When Jesus walks into the temple, he walks into a place of corruption, and he goes, enough's enough. And there's righteous anger. He's flipping over tables, and he's chasing out people out of the temple, saying, you have corrupted that which is to be holy and sacred and protected. You are corrupting it. So how does Jesus respond, first of all? With righteous anger. Now, I just want to say this before I move on. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that your Savior was angry with the corruption that was going on? Well, I don't know, Doug. Well, listen, he's angry with the sin that's in your life, right? Right? He's angry with the sin of in my life. He's angry with ungodliness. He gets angry with unrighteousness. But he's not going to sin out of that, but he is going to correct it. He is going to cleanse it. So Jesus begins the process of cleansing the temple, flipping over tables, chasing people out. And then he begins to speak. The second thing he responded with words of rebuke. Now this is where we get into the discipline side of things and correction. Jesus says this in verse 13. He said to them, It is written that my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, this is a pretty pregnant statement. I'm just going to tell you. This is one of those statements that probably pushed the religious leaders over the edge. Let's just leave it up for a moment. He says, my house. First thing I want you to know is Jesus is saying something here that's very, very powerful. The word my is in the first person which means it, it's, it's, it's a word of ownership. You remember when your kids were little and they wanted them to share their toys and they would grab it, what do they say? Mine. mine, not yours, mine. That's what Jesus is saying. This is my house, mine, not yours. You are abusing the very place that doesn't belong to you. It's mine and it's my house. That word house means dwelling place. So what Jesus is saying is, you have corrupted the place where I dwell. And for us, we're like, oh, that's good. No, 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 it's great. Because he just sent a message to these religious leaders who went into the, the temple and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies because that's where the presence of God was. That's where the presence of God dwelled. And Jesus just said this, guess what? Guess who's the one has been dwelling in there all these years? Me, because I'm God. I mean, this is a statement where Jesus lets all of them know, if there was ever any doubt, this is my house. He didn't say it's God's house. He didn't say it's the Father's house. He said, this is, whose house? <laughs> my house. My place where I dwell, and you're corrupting this whole thing. Now, I'm telling you, for the Jews, they'd have been like, uh-oh. This is, this is like a powerful moment for Jesus. And he says, my house will be called a house of what? Prayer. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. My house should be a place where people come to pursue me. My house should be a place where people come to chase after me, where people come to pray, where people come to praise, where people come to offer as a sacrifice to me. My house should be a place where people come in pursuit of me. Not only that, my house should be known as a place uh, where people come to pursue me. Here's what I mean. My house should not get out in the community that my house is a place of corruption. I don't want my house to be known as a place of immorality. I don't want my house to be known as a place where all the snobs go. I don't want my house to be known as a place where only these clique of people can come. My house is a place that should be a house of prayer, a place where people pursue me and chase after me. And to be known for that, Not known for cliques, not known for corruption, not known for immorality, but known as a place where people can come seeking me. My house is to be called a house of what? Prayer. A place where people come pursue him. But listen, a place for everyone. Now I want you to notice something that we sometimes forget. Did you know in the temple there was the court where the Jewish people went to offer sacrifices, but then there was an outer court called the Gentile court? Do you know who the Gentiles are? Everybody who's not a Jew, right? And even in the temple, there was a place for them to have worship. But what had happened was these money changers and these vendors had robbed the Jewish people financially of being able to go into the temple and do what they needed to do. And they had robbed the Gentiles of a place to really worship. They had so made this a place of commerce that when Jesus walked in, I mean, the Gentile people had no real place. I mean, this is like a five acre area, and they had no place to worship, which was designed for them. And so Jesus says, listen, first of all, this is my house. It belongs to me, not you. You have corrupted something that belongs to me, not you. And it's going to be known as a house of prayer, a place where people pursue me, a place where people chase after me, a place for all people. That's what my house is going to be known for. But you have made it a den of robbers. And did you pick up on that? Now, you look at that and go, that doesn't seem too terrible. Oh, it was bad. It It was like equivalent to Jesus calling them vipers and snakes. Now, the question is, who's the you, right? You could be ambiguous. It could be a one hand that Jesus talking to the money changers and the people he's chasing out, and maybe this is what he's saying. But I think it's probably that, but I also think it's a little bit more than that. I think he looks at the religious leaders and maybe even points a finger and goes, but you have made it a den of robbers. You've done this. In other words, you've made it a place, you've made it a refuge for criminals. Think about that. A place that's to be holy, a place that is to be sacred, you've made it a refuge for criminals. It's no longer holy, it's no longer sacred, it's no longer protected. It's a place where thieves hang out, where evil resides. In fact, Jesus, when he says this, is actually quoting verbatim Jeremiah seven chapter eleven. I think we have it on the screen here. Jeremiah seven eleven, Jeremiah says, "Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it," declares the Lord. And so Jeremiah, back way back when, back in five, the five hundred uh, B.C., is standing before Israel as they are the, the people of the Israelites as in the land of Judah as they're coming to the temple, and he's telling them, you know, you think just by showing up you're okay with God to the temple. You think that you can live how you want to and show up to the temple and somehow God is appeased with you. When you do that, you've made it a den of robbers. Now, here's what I want you to know. (coughs) That's true for them. And that is true, (coughs) excuse me, for us as well. And Jeremiah, throw me that one right there, Elijah. Jeremiah called out, that one right there, a little bit. Yeah, that's good. That's good, just throw it to me, it's fine. Yeah, it's good. I got enough. Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. So Jeremiah called out Israel, and now he called Jesus calls out the religious leaders and says, "Listen, you've made my house a place where thieves hang out." Now, just a quick question. Just I know that we are the temple of God, right? This this place is a school that we've we've turned into a place of worship. But can we do the same thing to this place too? Can we do the same thing here? Make this feeling of that if I just show up on Sunday some of my God is pleased with me, but my temple is corrupt. Yeah, same thing can happen to us. And so Jesus calls them out. And then Jesus does something here next as we wrap this story up that's absolutely bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Jesus has come into the temple. He's had this righteous anger. And then he's had these words of rebuke where he says, this is my house and you've corrupted it. I want it to be a place where people come to pursue me, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he calls them out. And then he does something very, 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 in my opinion, very, very bizarre. Look what happens next in verse 14. The third reaction of Jesus. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he did what? He healed them. What? There's a brawl going on, Jesus. Right? People are, like, getting chased out. Tables are flipping. People are gathering coins. And you're speaking in a loud voice. In my. I mean, so there's stuff going on, Jesus, and you're, and you're in the temple. You're in the moment. And then Jesus goes and heals people in the midst of all that. So his third response is acts of grace, right? Now, why in the world? See, it, let me just be honest. When I look at this, I feel like this is such a bizarre placement for the story. I want it somewhere else. Like I've had some people before say this. We sing one of my favorite songs right here. Sing it last week. It's called Reckless Love. You know what I'm talking about? And I've had people go, we shouldn't sing that song. Why not? Because God's love's not reckless. Well, for God it's not, but for us it is. When I think about how God loves me, that seems reckless to me. Because you know how people love people? We quit on people. We don't chase after people. We write them off. But God doesn't. He'll climb any mountain, he'll cook any door, whatever the song says. I mean, but God's love is not reckless, but to me, it is reckless. And so when I read this story, I'm like, okay, God, Jesus, the fact that you showed acts of grace seems very odd to me. So the question is, why does he do it? He's got this moment where he's, he's overturning tables, righteous anger, this moment of his words where he's rebuking them for all they've done and how he wants it to be a place that people can pursue him and how they've made it a place where thieves hang out. And then he turns around. And he begins to heal people. Do you notice it says in the temple, in the midst of all this nonsense? Now, why would Jesus do this? Here's what I believe. I believe it's because Jesus wanted everyone there to know that his heart is always, always, always about renewal and restoration. Right? Jesus, Even in the face of all of this, the heart of Jesus is always about renewing and restoring even when things are bad, even when things have gone south, even when we are faithless, Jesus is always about renewal and restoration. But I want you to hear me this morning. How do we get renewal? How do we have a renewed sense of a relationship with the Lord? How do we restore a broken relationship with the Lord? How does that happen? Are you ready? Through cleansing, just like the temple went through. How do we experience renewal? How do we experience restoration? Through cleansing, just like the temple had to go through. And that's true for them and that's true for us. And what I love about the story and the fact that Jesus ends with this great act of grace is this, is that even in the face of discipline there's grace. Isn't that good news this morning? Amen. Is that good news? Even in the face of discipline there's grace. Because Jesus' heart is always for renewal and restoration. But to get there requires Cleansing. Now, for those of us here today that say that we're followers of Jesus Christ, you're believers, here's the question I have for you. What condition is your temple in? The Bible says your body is a temple. The Holy Spirit resides in you. You are the temple of God. What condition is your temple in today? Are you in a place of pursuing after God like you've never pursued him? Are you chasing after him, wanting to know more about him and to live in a greater way for him? Is it as your temple pure and free of corruption? Or is your temple a den of ungodly behavior, ungodly attitudes, ungodly actions, ungodliness? What condition is your temple in? See, 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 see that's when it gets real, isn't it? See, I can look at those money changers and vendors going, yeah, can't believe you would do that. But then when I look at my own heart, and go, what condition is my temple in? Oh, could Jesus look to me and say, but Doug, you've, you've taken my temple and you've made it a den of ungodliness, Doug. You've made it a den of unholiness, Doug. I need to cleanse your temple, Doug. So what condition, if you're a believer, what condition is your temple in? Are you pursuing after God? Are you free from corruption? Like idols? Or has your temple become a den of ungodliness? A den of bad behavior, ungodly behavior. And so if that's you today, if you're a believer, listen, here's my challenge to believers. I'm going to ask you something bold today if you're a believer. Here's, um, two things I'm going to ask you to do. Here's the first one. I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer that David prayed. In Psalms 51, David said this, Lord, search me. Search my heart, O Lord. See if there's any offensive way in me. Will you start there this morning if you're a believer? Say, all right, Lord, I know I know you're going to find something. It's like an inspector when they come and inspect your house, Right? You may think it's up to snuff, but eventually they come back with a list of all these things that have got to be fixed, right? So let's just be honest. He's going to find some stuff, isn't he? Come on. He's going to find some stuff, isn't he? Now, I'm ask you to confess it today or tell anybody, but you can kind of wink at me and go, I'm with you, Doug. I know, I know, I know he's going to find some stuff. But when we start praying that prayer, Lord, would you see if there's any offensive way in me? Because I know they are. And I've probably done really good at hiding them, discounting them, but Lord, would you search me? And the second thing I want to challenge you to do, once you've done that, is ask Him to do something that could be dreadfully painful. Lord, would you cleanse my temple today? Would you do a Roto roto Rooter work on my life? Would you clean me out today, Lord? Would you take all that ungodliness and would you clean it out of my life today? See, listen, if you today find yourself with a laundry list of things of ungodliness that He discovers in your life, what you should desire more than anything else is a renewed relationship with him, right? What you should desire more than anything else is being restored to him. But the only way that happens is through cleansing. And you need to pray say, Lord, now that you've discovered all these things in my life, would you cleanse my heart today? I want to leave this place today renewed and restored in my faith in you and my trust in you. And you may need to come in a moment to this altar, and you may need to pray. And this altar is open to you. You may want somebody to pray with you. We'll have people on both sides. Or you may just going do it in your seats and just say, Lord, here I am. I, I'm asking you, Lord, would you would you just search me today? And, Lord, I'm asking once you search me and you find these things, would you begin the cleansing process? Would you do that spring cleaning in August in my life today so that I can be renewed and restored to you? And then if you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, can I tell you the kind of cleansing you need is not a spring cleaning. You need the kind of cleansing for salvation. You need your sins washed away. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, there's only one path, only one way to enter to, to heaven. And that's by receiving the grace, the love of God, and putting your faith in Christ. Paul says, for I've been saved by grace through faith. And that needs to be your story. How do I do that, Doug? Where it's as simple as this. It's just acknowledging the Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've rebelled against you. And I surrender my life to you, Lord Jesus, today. And invite you in to be the boss and the master of my life. I receive your grace today. And if you will do that, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And you will have an eternal life here that leads you to heaven there. If you've never done that today, today would be a great moment for you to do it. You can acknowledge that you've done it on your card. I'll be right here. would love to talk to you. But don't let this day slip away. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me if you would. Everybody stand. As you stand, I'm going to ask you, every head, head uh, bowed, every eye closed. And Patrick and the band are just going to play for a moment. I'm going to pray. And then I'm asking ask just to take a moment before we sing, and just give you a chance to do what we've talked about. If you're here today and you say, "Look, man, Doug, I, I've never trusted Jesus." Listen, there's a cleansing you need. It's a cleansing of the heart, the soul. You need, you need Jesus in your life. You're never going to clean your life up enough. You need to put your faith in Jesus. And would you just, if that's you, would you just simply pray, and say, "Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that on my best day I can't work enough to earn Your acceptance." But you sent your son to die for me, demonstrating your grace. And today I ask you to forgive me my sins, and I receive that grace. And if you'll pray that, he'll change your life, and you'll be his child forever. And if you're a believer today, I'm just challenging you, please, would you ask the questions? Would you ask what condition is my temple in today? And Lord, would you search my temple? And then Lord would you cleanse my temple if you're a believer and you need to come to the altar in a moment please do but today before we leave we need to make sure our temples are in good shape we need to make sure there's no idolatry floating around in there we need to make sure that all selfishness is gone we need to be reminded that we are salt and light of the world that we reflect Jesus everywhere we go and if we're going to reflect him well, our temples need to be clean. So however God's moving your life, would you respond to that? Lord, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for this passage. And Lord, I pray for courage today. I pray for courage for those who don't know you to say, yes, Lord, I, I need you to Come into my life. But God, I pray for believers today. That I, Lord, would you just challenge us? And I pray that they would have courage to say, Lord, search me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Just like David prayed. And then, Lord, once those things start coming up, we would have a heart to say, Lord, would you cleanse me? Because, Lord, more what I want more than anything else is I want to have a new, renewed relationship with you. I want to have a restored relationship with you. I want to be the salt and light you've called me to be. Lord, I want to leave here today knowing that my temple has been cleansed. So God, when you give us the courage to say those things and may you work only as you can. May you and your Holy Spirit fall fresh on this place and challenge us. Show us the areas of ungodliness. And would you do your work of cleansing today? I know it may be painful. I know it may be hard. But it's a requirement for us to be more like you. So God, have your way with us today in your precious and your holy son's name we pray amen I'm asking ask you to just, just take a moment just pray challenge you with those two things if you want to come pray at our altar it's open I'm going to ask if I get a couple of our uh, maybe Don and Terry over here and Randy over here if you need somebody to pray with you they would love to pray with you if you want to come pray just come to the altar but just take a moment before we sing and just take that challenge and say Lord check my temple and then I dare you to say Lord cleanse my temple and then the band will lead us and you continue to respond